Okay, we'll get started. I'll uh, see if I can get through the questions left over from yesterday first. Oh, good, a, a nice easy one to start off. Why are the robes red instead of brown or orange? Um, so basically, um, I'm not too familiar with how the colors are in terms of like Mahayana. There's a lot of different colors, but in Theravada, the way the colors have come to be is simply just in the different countries like Thailand, Sri Lanka, Burma, all the different countries, the, the monks, even up until probably just about 30, 40 years ago, they, they dyed their robes using whatever was local to the environment the roots and things that were local to the environment. <clears throat> so that's why you have the different colors. Um, now, the, the only major distinction uh, that you might see is that technically, uh, what you call it, um, city monastics tend to have more of like the bright orange color and forest monastics tend to have like the darker colors. That's pretty much the, the only major difference. I go from color of robes to Nibbana. That's interesting. <laughs> is, Nibbana, is Nibbana impermanent, permanent, beyond permanence and impermanence? Thanks again. <laughs> so um, what Nibbana is beyond is conceptions and conventions. Right? Nibbana is something that is only ex able to be experienced. Even the Buddha, when, when you know, people ask the Buddha tons of questions about Nibbana um, in the suttas, and, you know, he, there was very little he could actually say. Like, he, he'll call it, like, the deathless, you know, and he'll say something, like, the, the most famous uh, simile is Nibbana is like going out like a lamp. So you have a, a lamp, and the lamp has a, a wick and oil, and then you light the wick, and that drains, you know, drains the oil, and it gets burned. And so <clears throat> Nibbana is like an oil lamp where the light goes out, and there's simply no more fuel. The, simile, the, the fuel in that simile is our craving. So when there's no more craving, there's no more further existence. You go out just like the lamp. Um, and of course, then people say, do you, do, does a awakened being exist or not exist after, or, you know, when they die, or all these kind of things. And the Buddha refused to answer these questions. Um, so is Nibbana permanent or impermanent? I don't know. It's beyond conceptions. It's beyond conventions. And I'm not there yet, so I can't answer that with any degree of certainty. <laughs> During jhana, is there free will? Can you come out of jhana if you want to? Um, I already told you guys I've not been in jhana, so, but I can't really answer this with experience. But what I will say is that um, what, like when Bhante Ji talks about this, what he'll say is, and other monks that I've heard, when you're in jhana, you can set an intention. Like, you know, okay, I'm going to, in, I'm going to be in jhana for an hour, and then you come out of that intention, which is why, you know, unlike how I said, you know, when I, at the last, the end of the last uh, 
meditation where I, where I said, ooh, I don't want to go in jhanas because then I might have to, I missed the 5.30 bell, right? Somebody who's in jhana, they don't have to worry about that. They can make the intention. At the end of the hour, I'm coming out and I can just ring the bell. So, yeah, I mean, there's, you can have these intentions and, and do this within jhana. Otherwise, I can't answer it further. Bhante, how important is it to have a spiritual advisor? Should one be able to speak to this person in person? That's an interesting question. And that's something you're going to get different answers depending on the tradition and all these kind of things. Um, <clears throat> you know, as for myself, I, for, I was a lone practitioner, the only Buddhist I knew in my daily life, basically until I came here to live at the monastery. Um, you know, my, my spiritual advisors were at first monastics that I listened to online. And then once I found out about Bhavna, I would come, you know, four or five times a year and, and listen to Bhante G and these kind of things. So while I would say it is important if you have like a teacher or a spiritual advisor, I wouldn't be too worried if you don't, if there's nobody around, you know, you or anything like that, you can still practice. <clears throat> and these days with the internet, you know, like I, uh, pe people already ask me, are these talks going to be online? Yeah, they're online. We have YouTube and all these kind of things. Now, unfortunately, you're not going to be able to go on Facebook and talk to Bhante G. Um, <laughs> but uh, you can talk to other monks and stuff on, on these, on Facebook and things like that. Um, so, and also it's, it's very common these days that people, you know, especially how people are all spread out in the West and things like that. It's common that you use like Skype and things like that. Like every Aposita, Bhante G gives a Dhamma teaching to bhikkhunis in California over Skype, right? You know, so even in these days, there's um, Bhante Vimala Ramsi uh, in Missouri. He has these like online um, retreats where you do the retreat in your home and then you want, you know, once a day, you can have a certain m number of minutes online to talk to him during the retreat, these kind of things. So thankfully with the emergence of the internet, there's a lot of opportunity to, to get good instruction in your practice. Can you please explain the relationship between mindfulness of dukkha, uh, so the three characteristics, anicca, anicca, dukkha, and anatta, and metta practice? Should they be practiced separately at the same time or in a particular sequence? Um, so when Bhante was talking about that, the one sutta, I don't know the name of it, but where Ananda is giving the um, saying, you know, where you can switch to insight, right? Switch to insight. He's talking about you can do it in the first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana, etc., etc., during metta, etc. And so what this is, is when you are practicing metta, you can, you can use that. You can use that to develop this understanding of anicca, dukkha, and anatta. When you're thinking of all these beings, you can think and you can understand, well, all of these beings are subject to change. 
They were born, they're going to exist for a time, and then they're going to cease. Right? Understanding the limitations, the frailty of th these beings in this life. <coughs> and you can understand that the, because they're impermanent, and you can develop compassion for the people. You know, it, it, it's been my experience in life and in also my practice that people, very, very few people are actually really malevolent and really just out to just be harmful and hateful to everybody. That's very few people. Most people are really just trying to find some kind of happiness and live in the best way they know how. And oftentimes I kind of think of it as like a, like a bunch of ping pongs that are just going all left and right and everywhere. And sometimes we just bounce off each other. You know, sometimes we deal with people that we, you know, have bad experiences with people and these kind of things. People do, do harm to us, um, you know, because, and you wonder, you know, then you get angry and annoyed at that person and, and then your method goes out the window for that person. So you can understand when you are even metta itself right you can also understand metta, oh oh man i'm blissed out i have metta for everybody and then the next second it's gone and you're like oh god i hate that person right you can see right then and there your metta is impermanent right and if you attach to that metta you're all blissed out and then as soon as the metta is gone and you're attached to it and you get you suffer because of it right so you can use all of these experiences to really, uh, within that framework of examining the three characteristics. Emptiness. <laughs> so they don't say much about that in Theravada. <laughs> I appreciate your giving importance to the Sutta discourses over the Sudamaga and the Abhidhamma. Actually, I do too. It's one of the main reasons why I really liked this place when I first came to it. Um, because I'm kind of in the same boat as Bhante-ji and Bhante-sila. I'm very, very much for the Suttas um, and not for the Sudamaga and the Abhidhamma. Although, unlike them, I don't really know, I haven't really read because, you know, like the Abhidhamma and all these kind of things. I haven't read a lot of that, so. Uh, can you explain why, how the Vasudhamaka and the Abhidhamma came to be given such importance by some teachers or sects? Though th both the, um, the Abhidhamma has, is, is canon. It's part of the Pali canon. So, I mean, it is part of Theravada. <clears throat> In places like Burma, it's heavily taught. Um, even in, in, you know, places like in Sri Lanka, too, the same thing. Like Bhante Ji will, will, you know, tell me about how he watched this young monk in Sri Lanka and he's, he was a wonderful teacher and he's teaching Abhidhamma and all these kind of things. Um, it's, a, it, it's something that is part of the tradition um, and it's something that has grown and, and become uh, a major part over the centuries. <coughs> For me personally, the way I see it is because it, we really, really have a desire to know. And the suttas can be very 
the, the suttas for somebody who has this like real, real desire, oh, I have to know exactly every single way of how karma and rebirth works and all these kind of things. If you're like that, the suttas are not going to be that helpful for you because the Buddha does not go into that detail. You know, because he's, he's always pushing you back towards what is your experience right now? You know, he's always put, like, I, did a, I just did a mindfulness of death retreat. And, you know, I was always talking about, the Buddha is ta- always talking about the, the divine messengers, old age, sickness, and death. And so that's what I'm, the, the whole retreat, that's what I'm talking about. And some people at the end thought I was going to give, like, an intellectual discourse on, like, karma and rebirth and all that, what happens after life. Right? So that's just the nature. And so the Abhidhamma is, like, the attempt to explain everything that the Buddha did not want to explain. So for me, it's like, well, yeah, that makes sense. You know, so the Buddha is telling us, this is, you know, you only need to know this to end your suffering. But afterwards, everybody else wanted to, we wanted to know, you know, instead of this number of, of cravings or this number of feelings, there's 200 numbers of feelings and all these kind of things. So, that, and so I can understand how the Abhidhamma can be something that is, is taught and used because, well, you know, what are you going to tell people? You're going to tell people just the Buddha says not to think about that? Then they're not going to like that answer. <laughs> you know, these kind of things. So... <clears throat> the, the Vasudha Magga is basically the handbook of Theravada. I mean, it, it is really what, if you think of modern, of Theravada the way it is now, it, a lot of that came from the Vasudha Magga. So it's an extremely important book in that regard. Um, but with all that, like with the commentaries and the Vasudha Magga and the Abhidhamma, the people who, again, like I said, I've, you know, I've read almost all of the suttas, the Nikayas, but I haven't read all of the Abhidhamma and all these kind of things. So the people who have and understand all of those, what they say is that, oh, wow, I forgot where I was going. Well, I'll remember it in a second if I do. Um, question regarding right effort. When applying effort to offer metta to individuals, how much detail should we visualize? Do we try continuously to continuously hold an image of the person in our minds? Thank you. Um, we don't teach the giving metta to individuals because the Buddha actually rarely, only two times did the Buddha ever talk, teach about giving metta to an individual being. Um, the first was of somebody who is, brings up a lot of aversion in you. And the second was to like creatures like snakes and stuff that if you're in the woods to give metta to them. The, 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 the way the Buddha taught metta was actually Bhante Sila mentioned it. Uh, one of the methods was the, just the directions, right? All four, the four directions and then above and below. That's how the Buddha taught metta. So you're not, you actually don't need to focus on an individual person in that regard. Um, the, the other way, so that's what, the, what is called um, limitless goodwill. That's called limitless metta. And then um, there is exalted metta, which is where you start 
from yourself and you gradually are expanding your metta like okay all beings in this monastery all beings in this state country uh, 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 planet galaxy etc etc all beings into all existence so that's that's how we teach uh, metta here so that we don't because the reason why they that people are not too keen on teaching the individual method which actually the, the the whole thing you know starting with the teacher's family neutral person all that that's actually from the Vasudha Magga so you can <laughs> tell how we teach that here we don't um, but so but, and that's not to say that it's not a bad it's a, a bad method before I came here that's the method that I practiced too and it worked I mean it worked for me um, although I tend to prefer doing the, the practice without having any individuals in my mind. I, even you know, when, when you're expanding at, because when you start to think of individuals, that's when you start to have something besides metta. You know, pima, love, you know, hate, all these different things kind of come up that are not limitless goodwill. So, but in terms of visualizing, if you're going to, to visualize a person, um, what I've done and still do, like if I'm giving method to myself, I'll visualize like I'm looking at myself in a mirror. So you can have the, 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 the person's smiling face in front of you and you can give method to them. Um, but you don't have to continuously hold the image either. Metta is, the, the two main ways that people practice metta are um, with visuals and with words. But the visuals and the words are not the, they're, they're not the goal. The goal is the feeling of metta and a mind state of metta. A mind state free of ill will. Uh, a feeling of happiness and safety and security and, and friendship, goodwill with all beings. That's what you're developing. And as a matter of fact, if you're going to use metta as a samatha practice to, do, to get into jhanas, that's what you're focusing on. You're focusing on that feeling. Um, there, there are some well-known, well-respected monastics that they actually use. They don't do mindfulness of breathing. They use metta. Like Bhante Analio is one of them. I think he says he starts out you know, thinking about like a cute little bunny or something like that. Um, I'm not too familiar with the specifics of his thing. I only heard that. But metta is very important. Building a sound foundation of mindfulness seems to work and PT arises. Is there any time I should turn my attention to the PT? Can I pay attention to the breath and the PT? Mm, that, that's going above my experience. Um, and I mean, I've heard different monastics talk about this but i i don't trust my ability to to give you their exact words without uh messing it up so unfortunately i'm not going to answer that um maybe i'll put it aside and leave it for bonte i'll give it back he gave it to me i'll give it back to him <laughs> for tomorrow <coughs> When do monastics bow to the Buddha images of the Buddha? 
Um, it's pretty much any time you enter or exit a room with a Buddha Rupa. That, that, that's the tradition. Um, so yeah, that's when we bow. What is no self in Pali? Anatta, A-N-A-T-T-A. And actually it's, it's more like no soul. Um, the, the way Bhante Sila and sometimes Bhante G, the, the way they translate it as soullessness. Um, so an, anatta is <clears throat> the opposite of atta. And so at the time with the Brahmins, one of the beliefs, and it's still, as far as I know, it's part of Hinduism today um, as well. There's this, each of us had this, have this thing called the Atta. And it's literally described as like a little being, a little like, you know, being a, a light being or something that's in your body, like almost like this little soul. And it leaves your body when you sleep or when you die. <clears throat> and the object of that, and this is a permanent entity, and that it keeps being reborn, and the object is to bring is to reunite that atta with Brahma. And the Buddha comes in and he says, There's no atta, there's anatta. So he says, There's no permanent soul. <clears throat> and if you think about it, if everything is impermanent, having a permanent soul would pretty much kill the whole idea of everything being impermanent, right? So if everything is impermanent, then what you think you are can't be permanent. You can't have this permanent soul, this permanent uh, identity, right? <clears throat> and the, the Buddha actually never said that there's no self per se. Actually, he was asked and he refused to answer the question. Um, so I, I think, but what it is important to understand is that there's no permanent self. There's no permanent soul. Um, you know, you can think of, you know, if you think about the, the Buddha says that basically what we are are the five aggregates, right? Five aggregates, form, feeling, perception, intention, and consciousness. Now, if you think about it, like, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much a self. Yeah, I'm, I'm this person. I'm this age. I'm this, you know, this is who I am. This is what I do. All these kind of things. These are all the, <clears throat> the narratives that you've built upon this framework of this is me. And of course, part of that is for the, you have to have that framework in a way to kind of interact and exist in a conceptual, conventional world. But <clears throat> when you really look deeply, you are hard-pressed to see you in anything. Right? That's one of the things. And it's been my experience that anatta is not like something like, you know, like one second you're like, oh, I have a self, the next second, oh, I don't have a self, eureka. It's a, it's a very gradual process of understanding well everything that i thought was me mine myself well i don't i i can't see that anymore i don't see you know um you know like 
your thoughts, the thoughts that arise. Right? One of the, when, when you have the first experience of where your monkey mind, where, your, where those thoughts that arise unbidden, just stop for minutes, not even just for a couple seconds or like when you're in the middle of doing some physical activity, but literally you've developed your, your mind enough to the point where there's nothing in your mind. It's quiet. The monkey mind's gone. The first time that happened to me, I was like, well, who, who's thinking if my thoughts are not here, but I'm still here? And it, it, you know, that's the kind of stuff that gets confusing, but that's like, that's the first glimpses of understanding, well, the stuff that I thought was mine, well, maybe it's actually not, you know? And, and so this is why <clears throat> anatta is another one of those things where you have to experience it. You have to start to see um, and, and explaining it, unless you're really, really good at it. There's obviously, you know, I'm still working on the ability to explain something like that um, in a skillful manner. But, um, you know, it's, it's something that comes from the practice and it's something that you can only see in the practice. And if you intellectualize it, you can really drive yourself nuts trying to think about it. Oh. Hi, Bhante. Will maintaining a single point of focus help to relieve tightness in muscles? I notice subtle releases throughout the body, but my shoulders are tense due to computer use. I don't know if the single point of focus will help relieve the tightness in the muscles, um, but I think that the focus, if, if your focus is strong enough that it doesn't, that the physical body doesn't take you away from it, well then, you know, it's not a, as big of an issue. You know, I've, I've had experiences where, you know, I, I very rarely, I have trouble sitting even for sometimes on an average for like 45 minutes to an hour on a regular basis. I have a lot of trouble with that and issues with my body and all these kind of things, and I always have. But there's been some times where I've been in this, even for like a couple of days straight, where I've been in this, this state of mind where I sit there peacefully for like an hour and a half. And okay, I'm starting to feel, like around a half hour, I can tell when my body is, is telling me, like, okay, you've been sitting for a half hour because I start to have all these feelings and all this stuff. But then, as I'm practicing, as I'm getting deeper and deeper, like, and then I'll feel like my foot's foot, my, my leg's falling asleep. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm just gonna live with it. Then somehow, weirdly enough, it starts not becoming asleep. I didn't move at all, but it's changing, right? And then, interestingly enough, I'll come out of it like an hour and a half. I'll come out and I feel totally refreshed. I have no aches, no pains, no nothing. And I thought to myself, well, what the heck did I just do? And how do I do that on a regular basis? It's just like an a, amazing thing. So, you know, <clears throat> that, that can help. Having, being able to have this deep concentration can help that, but I, I'm not 100% sure that it will, you know, it fix your body. That's why, you know, have stretching and, and doing yoga and, and Taking care of yourself is important in that regard.
Will you please provide advice for how to work skillfully with each of the following? Fear, boredom, impatience, excitement, and pain. Boy, that's like an hour. Um, really, uh, in all honesty, <coughs> the, the, the best thing to do is see all these, fear, boredom, impatience, excitement, and pain, they're all experiences of the mind and of the body, right? So you can use that sati and sapajanya, the mindfulness, clear comprehension. You can observe it. You watch it. Fear is a, both a physical and a mental reaction. If you actually do the, you know, like I, years ago, even before I became a Buddhist, I wanted to start facing my fears. And I did, you know, crazy stuff. Like I, I started going out in the middle of the woods and I started doing it with a tent. And then as I did it more and more, I, I did, you know, I did it without a tent and all these kind of things. And, it, and I'm seeing it. And like the first night I'm totally, all I see is just pitch black and there's nothing between me and the pitch black. And I'm like, oh crap, this is scary. But what I did is I practiced metta. Metta helped because I was practicing metta to all the beings. I practiced metta to myself you know, the compassion for myself that I'm in this situation. And then I focused on, well, what am I feeling? You can feel the tingling down the spine. You can, and you can see the cloudiness of your mind. And you can just see, like, and you're just like, there's this tension that you want to get up and go and just find something, get, get to the light, get to other people, whatever. And so in the suttas, I, I think they mentioned it, the, it's the fourth sutta. It's one of my favorite suttas in, in the in Nikayas. It's in the Majjhima Nikaya. It's called Bayabevara Sutta, Fear and Dread. And the Buddha is explaining how he did exactly these things. How he went, he says, you know, I want to uh, understand this. So he went into the woods on special nights like a posita, full moon, uh, new moons, these kind of things. And he, um, and as he says, as I was meditating, there was a sound. And then maybe a peacock came or an animal came or all these things came. And, and then I noticed in my mind, why does my mind go to f directly to fear and dread? And you think, wow. Like this is the Buddha talking about before he was a Buddha. And you can really connect with that. Like as like, because I thought that's, you, you think the same thing. Like, why does your mind instantly always go to thinking about what the worst of whatever's going to happen? Right? There's this wonderful um, Winnie the Pooh thing, and it's uh, uh, Pooh and Tiglet, and they're going, and it's like start storming or whatever. And, and Pooh says, Oh, oh, no, no, no. Piglet says, Oh, what if a tree falls on us? What if this? What if that? And then Pooh says, well, what if it doesn't? And I was like, wow, yeah. Like, what if it does? So, so, and that's the same thing with the Buddhists saying, like, you know, okay. You know, you, have, you go directly to these fears, right? <coughs> and so I was the same way. And like, I survived. Like, I, oh. You know, I wake up the next morning. No animal drug me away in the night. I'm still alive. I'm still all in one piece. 
and you do it more and you do it more. And that's actually how you face your fears. Like if I was just recently listening to a therapist and, and that's how he's talking about how people like people who are afraid of the elevators, right? <clears throat> he says he brings them as close as they feel comfortable to the elevator. And then how do you feel? feel. And then the next time, can you come a little closer? Can, the, can you come a little closer? So you're gradually, gradually facing your fears and seeing that, hey, you know what? I didn't die. I'm okay. <clears throat> and so that allows you to be more confident and have more courage. <clears throat> and then you can, you can be in a situation where like, you know, when I'm in the woods now, and I can see, I can f feel my body, just all the tingling. I can feel that. I can feel that my mind trying to close in. But I can be at peace and I can still be there and I can be meditating. And I can see that. And it, I've practiced enough to the point where it doesn't have to control me. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, the last new, new moon where there was no moon, I went, when I went up and meditated up there, I was actually amazed that I had no fear whatsoever. I'm by myself up in the woods on this platform and like there was no like, oh my God, any animal can come take me, right? So that's like, <clears throat> that's the importance of practicing your fears. And, and you know, like you don't even have to go up in the woods. I mean, every day there's a million things that we have are fearful about. Even the littlest things. I think Pima Chodron said something like, you know, every day do something that you fear. You know, that's an, that, and, and that's something I took to heart as well. Like you, you don't start out by, you know, you don't start facing your fear by jumping out of a plane, right? You start little by little <clears throat> and you start by examining and understanding it and seeing it for what it is. And as you see it, you, you start to, when you, the more you understand what it is, the less control it has over you, the more choice you have to not allow it to control your actions. <clears throat> now, with boredom, right? You, when if you're examining the boredom, and you see, okay, I have this boredom. Well, what are you going to do about it, right? And boredom is like a real, like there's this just intense drive to do something. Like the mind, <coughs> the mind can't stand an instant just being there. You know, oh. What, what can I do? Can I check my Facebook? Did I get a new announcement, a notification, this, that, all these things? Because I can't stand just being here, not doing anything. <clears throat> and so again, you watch that, examine that. If you can't stand, if you can't sit with it, well then develop, instead of fixing your boredom by going on Facebook, Fix your board. Oh, I'm bored. Okay. I'm just going to follow my breath. I'm just going to meditate. If, I, if my breath is boring, I'm just going to follow my body. I'm going to find something to investigate. And at least, it, you know, you're gonna, you can get rid of your boredom in that regard in a more skillful way. Because <clears throat> you, you're able to see it, understand what it is, and then make a, a good decision about it. Impatience. With impatience and things like anger and stuff like that, I, I, what I found is I started, I learned it here years ago 
and from a different context, but I took this, what I learned, and I made it part of a larger part of my practice, and it works wonderful. And that's three deep breaths. Every time I start, begin my meditation, three deep breaths, walking, sitting, whatever. And I train myself, when you do that, you train yourself that these three deep breaths, your mind understands, okay, it's time to practice, it's time to meditate. And so I also train myself these three deep breaths. Anytime I was impatient, anytime that I had anger, anything like that, if I had the mindfulness, the sati, I said, okay, three deep breaths. And so <clears throat> this is a way to, when you're kind of like in, in impatience and anger and all these things, the way, I, the way I see it is like you kind of get, you get locked into this roller coaster and you have no choice because you're locked in and you're strapped in. You have, you have to ride it all the way to the end. When you practice mindfulness and you become aware of your mind and you develop these kind of techniques, these are, give, these are techniques that you're being able to use to not get thrown on that roller coaster, to have a choice and to, and to, and to more skillfully handle a situation. So when, when you're impatient and that anxiety is building, you know, you're impatient because something should be happening and it's not, or something's taking too long, all these kind of things, and you're building and building and building, and then that start, you start building ang anger and resentment and all these kind of things. You can cut that out. You, if you practice and you have the mindfulness you, you, that clicks into your mind, even if it's for a split second, oh wait, I have a choice. I can do, I, I can, I have a tool. I'm going to stop this. Follow my breath. You know, examining, you know, if you follow your breath, examine my mind, using the satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness. And when you're able to do that, then you, know, you can see a more skillful way to handle any situation. I would say the same thing with excitement too. You know, we, we kind of see like the issue, we kind of see like a danger or understand a danger in, in anger, but we don't necessarily see like the, the danger in excitement. It's like, oh, I'm happy, it's great, I'm manic, happy, excited, and these things are happening, this, all this good stuff is happening. What, what I, uh, how I learned about excitement is when I came here and I realized that even like my excitement, like I get excited and I'd, be, you know, all of a sudden I'd be walking faster and doing all these things faster. And I realized, whoa, I'm using up a lot of energy that way. And so I, I, when I get excited and I, and I notice myself, if I have the mindfulness, I move myself back to an, like an equanimity. Okay. Something ha good is happening. That's good. You know, I, you know, I, I feel this excitement you know, examine what that does to your mind and to your body, the thoughts that arise, all of these kind of things. <clears throat> and then you can, and just doing that is kind of, it's breaking you from, because you're involved in the excitement. This is my excitement. I like this. Oh, this is great. You're detaching from it. You're depersonalizing it because you're examining it. And then you can see it for what it is, a feeling, a mind state. And, you know, you can understand, well, I'm excited because of this reason. You know, and you can also understand, well, I'm excited because, well, I don't like that person and that person got what they deserved. Or, and that's like, oh, that's unskillful. Or you can be excited because like, 
oh, like, you know, my spouse or somebody, we got, they got a new job and our life can be better and all these kind of things. Like, so, so you can even see the skillfulness or, and the harm in, in that excitement. And pain. When it comes to meditation, um, there's two kinds of pain. There's what I call real pain and there's meditation pain. Um, real pain is you had an accident, you had an injury, you have actual issues with your body and you're meditating and you're going to be like, you know, med sometimes a meditator is like, I'm just going to sit with it and I'm just going to observe it and all these things. And then I've, I know meditators, I'm 39, I know meditators my age. One, you know, he is this, uh, a Zen guy and he really, I mean, he's, you know, he was in Korea meditating on top of the mountains in the snow and meditating for hours on end and all these kind of things. He just had two hip replacements, right? So there is, there is the pain that is to be understand, understood in meditation as, as dangerous and you don't necessarily want to sit with it if you feel like it's gonna be permanently damaging. Then there's the pain of, you're not used to sitting on a cushion for a bunch of hours and, and you're here at a retreat and then by the second day there's a knot in your back and because your body is not used to keeping itself up for these, this amount of hours and, and then maybe your leg falls asleep and all these kind of things. That kind of stuff, that stuff you can try to sit, observe, watch it. See how long you can bear being with that pain, understanding that pain. What is the pain doing to your body? What is the pain doing to your mind? What thoughts are arising? What intentions are arising? The intention to want to get up, to move, to change your position, these kind of things. And so you do that and you know, if it gets to a point where it's just too bearable, you change your position. You get up and do walking meditation, these kind of things. So you can be with the pain as much as you can. Let it be a lesson, let it be your teacher. Um, but then if there's a certain point where you need to try to address it and alleviate it, then try to address it and alleviate it. And then sometimes when you try to, the pain won't go away. And that's your teacher as well. Right? There's no escape from pain. You can only try to keep it at bay for a certain amount of time. Bhante, I'm ashamed to admit it, but I tend to be judgmental. Welcome to the club. They are wrong about X. I am right about X. I try to be considerate of others. They do not. Why are they doing this? Why are they not doing that? <clears throat> I do not wish to harm. I do not wish harm to others. Yet perhaps it is ill will. It's definitely ego. I am familiar with the exhortation to give attention to what I have done or left undone. Good rather than giving attention to what others have, been, have done or not done. I use that reflection all the time. It's very good. It's one of the best things in the suttas. It is certainly unskillful, unhelpful, and a cause of mental agitation. Do you have any advice or tips to help me subdue these judgmental tendencies? <clears throat> Keep practicing. That's the main thing, honestly. But when I look at myself, before, you know, I've been meditating now 12 years, about 12 years. When I look at myself 12 years ago, 
how self-critical and self-judgmental I was and how hard I was on myself. Well, guess what? You know, I might not have been it outwardly, but I was the same to other people as well. Always, these people are stupid. I can't believe they're doing this. They should know better. All these kind of things. And so the, the more I practiced, <clears throat> the more my practice developed, the more I started to understand my mind and to see what I was doing and how it was harming me, the more I let it go. And the more I let it go for myself, the more naturally I let it go for others. There's, there, there wasn't, you know, once it, I started dropping my own self-criticism and self-judgment, <clears throat> it was the same for others. Because I realized, well, I'm the same. You know, <clears throat> we all have, you know, we all have different tendencies and, and different you know, due to karma and our past choices and all these kind of things, we're in many ways we're different. But deep down at the core, our minds are basically the same. We all have greed, hatred, and delusion. We all are, <clears throat> like I was saying before, we're all trying to come from this. We're, we're thrown in this world. We don't have any idea who we are, why we're here, what we're supposed to do, any of these things. And so we're just struggling to try to understand what the heck we're supposed to do here in this life. And so <clears throat> when you understand like, the, you know, uh, yeah, I'm lost. Well, so is, so is everybody else. And so, you know, it, it becomes much easier to have compassion for other people, much easier to have understanding. Like this, you know, I'm right, they're wrong. You know, like you can even <clears throat> get into like pity, like, Oh, you know, those people, unfortunately, they just have greed, hatred, and delusion, and they're so ignorant. But I, I hope that one day they'll become awakened, and, you know, then they can understand. And, you know, like, you, you can get into that kind of like, <clears throat> and then that, that's, why, that's why it's hope, important to see your own, it's translated, it's to see your own omissions and commissions, what you have done and what you haven't done. Because you're, because you're, you can see that you're, you're tr maybe you're trying to, to understand them in a skillful way, but it's really gone off into the wrong track. Because you're just building your own, you know, ego and, and, and damning another person. <clears throat> so it's really something that, that has to come with, with time. It's something that you can, you know, if you have this judgmentalness towards people, Develop, give them metta, you know, give them, because what that is, is that's agitation, that's aversion. And so the Buddha says there's five things, five ways that you deal with somebody whose aversion has come up. First is metta. Second is compassion, karuna. Third is to avoid them and ignore them as if at all possible. Uh, fourth is equanimity. Try to, if you can't have metta for them, at least try not to have hate for them. Try to have an equanimous mind. And then the fifth is to understand that they are the owners and heirs of their actions just like you are. You know, what they're doing might be harmful to them, might be harmful to others. You can have compassion for them. Don't have pity for them because pity is that you're putting yourself above them. You know, you, whatever, whatever you judgmental, whatever judgments you have for other people, it's in you as well. 
Like one of the things like you, you think like people, it's very easy for us as humans to dehumanize people, right? You think of like Nazi concentration camp guards. Oh God, they were so evil, horrible people, right? I can guarantee you that if you were that person in that time at that place, you would be the same way. You would do the same thing, right? So you understand that. And so that is like developing compassion for these people, even people that you feel so reprehensible and that you can't even, you wouldn't even want to shake their hand. You can develop this understanding. Like when I practice, uh, I I have this thing, it it hasn't gone over well with people, but I, I call it the Hitler test. And the test is if you can have meta for Adolf Hitler, who's the most reviled, hated person in this past century, then you can have metta for anybody. You can have compassion for anybody. And if you want to think of it in a Buddhist perspective, right, we have all, in our countless past lives in samsara, we've all been Hitler, we've all been Gandhi. We have all done the most horrible things to other beings. We've also done the most great things. So all of us, And like the Buddha says, it's hard, it would be hard pressed for you to find somebody who hasn't been your mother, your father, your brother, your sibling, whatever. And he he exhorts us to examine if if something, if somebody is doing something bad, hurting somebody, they're going through some pain, you, you you examine. I too have been in that situation in the past, in this life or in previous lives. Somebody's doing something, somebody's doing well <coughs> instead of <coughs> having, you know, this like uh, resentment and like, oh, they sh- don't deserve this. You understand. <coughs> I too have had, you know, I too have had these experiences and I too have done well in this life and in previous lives. So it's, you're using all these skillful means to connect yourself with the other people. Not in the, in the meaning of like, oh, we're all one and we're all one consciousness and all these kind of things. That's not Buddhism. <clears throat> but in that, this brotherhood or sisterhood, this siblinghood, that we're all stuck in this hellhole together and we're all trying to figure out what the heck we're, we should be doing, right? And so when you, start to, when you see that, well, it's just much easier to have compassion for people. Or at the very least, <clears throat> when anger arises, because you ha- you've developed that and you have the mindfulness, you can understand that and apply the techniques to, to let that go. Uh, Bhante Jayasara, wonderful talk. You spoke about the gratifications for desires like eating ice cream. Can you please speak more about the longer term desires or delayed gratification, such as the goal to own a home or to create a family, live abroad, etc.? Can the five hindrances also be applied to these life goals? Hmm. I mean, there. <clears throat> you can kind, you can see. Like, well, I'll just take this within the framework of the gratification, danger, and, and escape. Right. The gratification is like to have a to have a home, to have a family. I I know how it feels like this. It's very. Um, it's very fulfilling to have these kind of things and it's a very good feeling and, it, and compared to a lot of different things, it's very skillful and wholesome. Um, <clears throat> you know, like the Buddha, the Buddha, when he talks to lay people, he talks about taking care of f- 
family, taking care of mother and father, taking care of you know these your your people, having your these responsibilities. These are wholesome things. These are good things. Um, but you can understand <clears throat> that these are gratifying. But you can also understand the danger in these. Right? You saved up for a home. You bought a home. Then the housing bubble bursts. And what you paid for the home is half of what it's worth. Like all these kind of things, right? All of these, it's all unstable. It's all changing. <clears throat> so if you attach to these things, having the goal of if you have a family, if you have a wife and children and taking care of them and having a better life for them and all that kind of stuff, if you have a, whatever. These kind of goals, that's, that's good. That's a good, skillful goal. You're not, gonna, you're not trying to be a monastic. You know, you're not trying to escape the world. You're trying to do the best and live in a more skillful way while you're in the world. So <clears throat> you can understand, you know, delayed gratification is a heck of a lot better than, than instant gratification. So that, that's, that's developing discipline. That's developing the ability to endure. The Buddha talks about uh, to the monastics, the monks and the nuns, enduring hot and cold and gadflies and mosquitoes and 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 abuse from other people and all of these kind of things. Being able to have the discipline to, to delay gratification and to work for something like this in a long-term goal can help you, you know, have the, you can bring these same qualities to your practice. Does a unified mind able to think, perceive, do things in that state? Um, I'm assuming you mean in jhana. Um, well, as you can see how Bhante went through the first, you know, the jhanas. In the first jhana, you have thought. You have vitaka vichara, applied and sustained thought. Um, and then that thought gradually goes away. Now, uh, you probably also could be meaning like different teachers will say different things about jhana. Like some teachers will say that as soon as you get into jhana, you have, you, your senses are all gone. You have no, uh, you know, thought of your, you know, sight, sound, all of that goes away. And there's others that say that doesn't go away until the higher jhanas. So <clears throat> depending on the teacher and depending on who you follow, you're going to hear different things about that. Why is it understanding of the body in the body? Ah, see, this is what I was saying about for people to translate it different ways. Or as body, feeling and feeling, etc. And not simply understanding of the body. Now, see, some people have trans translated this as like a body in the body. <clears throat> so what they, what they translated that as you're examining, you know, when they give you the different techniques, the tools, like the, the examining the, um, the, uh, the, the elements, you know, examining these different things, that you're examining that in relation to the body. So they, they say that's what that means. Others will say it means that you are just, you're focusing, examining the body <coughs> with, with mindfulness without any, you know, greed or hatred without any like, dislike, these kind of things. Some people will say that's what that means. So, you know, you, you can watch six different monastics talk about Satipatthana, and I have, 
And you can hear them talk about things six different ways. Um, so it's one of those things where in my own practice, what I try to do with this, as especially Satipatthana is something I've been really trying to study and, and get to, you know, as your, your practice deepens, <clears throat> you understand, you go back to certain things and you understand things even more than you did. And so that's kind of like what I've been doing with Satipatthana recently. I've studied it for years, but every time I go back to it, I learn more and I understand more. <clears throat> and so, you know, that's what I've been doing is really trying to understand what this means. And so I, I read the suttas and I try to understand what the Pali words are and how that means. Because you can take a Pali word and you can translate three or four different ways. <clears throat> um, and then I try and then, so I understand, try to understand directly how the Buddha is, you know, how, what are the words actually saying? And then, because I'm no expert at this, I say, okay, well, what does Bhante Ji say? What does uh, Bhante Sujato say? What does, you know, the uh, uh, Bhikkhu Analyo say? What does, like, the, the monks that I trust, the, the teachers that I trust, what do they say about this, and why do they say that? So, you know, so it, it behooves us to, that's kind of like taking responsibility for that, right? Because you don't know. <clears throat> and also, connecting that with your practice. How does that, how does what all of that work connected to your experience? Does it fit with your experience? These kind of things. So that's how you, you know, that, that, that's at least my method of coming to try to understand um, how these things work. Another big one is um, in Anapanasati, the mindfulness of breathing, the, the, the fourth or the fifth one, the fourth one, there, there, some people will say that you are um, examining the body. So, so first it's like you, you're, you're watching the breath going in and out, long breath, short breath, and then it says, um, you know, you're the training to examine the body. Well, some people will say that means the body of breath as in, like Bhante Sila says, the full cycle of the breath. Other people say, no, you're actually examining the full body with the breath. So it can be very complicated. It can be very like, well, who's right? And the problem is often that, you know, you don't know. You just practice. Well, this person says to do this. Okay, well, I'm going to practice. Does it work? Maybe. Maybe it doesn't. You try something else. Can you, can you recommend <clears throat> what to pay attention to while doing walking meditation? Also, daily activities like during work period. <clears throat> walking meditation is, is pretty, you know, again, it's one of those things that the Buddha talks about walking meditation, but he doesn't give exact details. So you can have six different monks tell you six different ways on how to do walking meditation. For me, what I pay attention to is the feet, the bottom of my feet. As I'm walking, touching, you know, if you maybe have seen me walk, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the really slow move up, you get, come down. Like I, I've, that, that how, it wasn't how I initially trained. That wasn't how I practiced for a long time. So when I first learned it, it just felt so unnatural that I don't practice that way. So I practice just normal, natural pace back and forth. And so I'm paying attention to the feet. <clears throat> and then... So I'll do things, and, and if I start to, if that starts to get boring, I start to lose my, uh, you know, uh, my mindfulness on the feet, I'll wiggle my toes. Or I'll do something like, instead of 
slowly turning around. I'll do like a quick about face, you know, just to kind of like get, get myself <clears throat> focused on the feet. What's going on with my feet? And as you do that, the more you do it, you actually start to see not only what's going on with your feet, but higher. Like when you do standing meditation, you can see that if you're standing straight, if you think you're standing straight, you're not seeing deeply enough. Because what you're really doing is you're swaying like this, and you can see your tendons in your feet moving to try to keep you balanced. Right? So you, the more you practice, the, the more you can see in that regard. And the more you can see, the better it is because you're going to be less distracted. You're going to be less bored. And your mindfulness is going to deepen. <clears throat> and so that's the same thing with your daily activities. Whatever you're doing, what does it feel like in your body? What, are, what, is, what is the physicality? What are you doing? And, you know, and um, what is the feeling of that? Hot, cold. Uh, you know, uh, weight, struggle, all, and whatever you're doing, <clears throat> you're bending over. So you're, you're keeping your awareness in how your body is positioned. And then you can be aware of what your mind is doing in relation to that. You know, is your mind focused on the task at hand? Has your mind gotten bored and it's moved away and it's thinking about that person you like or your vacation and all these kind of things, right? <clears throat> and so then... If you get away, then you realize you've gone away and you come back. And so you're continuously focusing on, you know, this, um, what is going on in your mind and body. You know, there's some people teach the four foundations of mindfulness as like today, I'm going to just concentrate on following feeling, or I'm going to concentrate on following what's going on in my mind. And others teach, and this is how I've practiced, and I, I kind of like it this way is, you can see these four foundations of mindfulness in whatever's happening. You're meditating, an itch happens. Well, you have a body, so you're gonna have an itch. Then you have an itch, that's a feeling. What is that feeling? Is it pleasant or unpleasant? Right, and it's unpleasant and it's like, and you're trying to, you know, you're trying to fight it, you're trying not to itch, you're trying to be aware. And what's going on in your mind because of that? That, that impulse, that intention to just scratch that itch, to be done with it because you can't handle it anymore. So you're looking at your body, you're looking at your feeling, <clears throat> now you're looking at your mind. Where do the thoughts arising? Oh, that stupid itch, I just wanna itch. Oh, why can't I itch, why can't I itch? And then, so you're seeing these things, right? You're seeing what's going on in your body and then you can see, if you're really mindful, you can see how that's suffering. Like, you, what's going on in your mind? Oh, you know? And then, you know what you can see? You can, uh, sometimes you be ready. Okay I'm, okay, I'm done. This is as much as I can take. I'm going to scratch the itch. Then, you don't lose your mindfulness. What's the feeling as soon as you start scratching? Right? What, well, how does your feeling change? Is it, now it's a pleasant feeling. Right? What is that? What, what does that do to the anxiety and the tension in your body? Ah, relief, these kind of things. What does that do to your mind? For a split second, your mind is, oh, good, this is done. But then two seconds later, then you have a pain, and it starts all over again. So whatever you're doing, you can continuously, you can make this practice part of everything you're doing. And the more you do it, the more it's, it's like a being, it's like steamrolling. 
right? Or like building it like a, like a snowball going downhill. The more you do it, the easier it gets. The more your mindfulness, you know, mindfulness, sati, you know, we think of continuous practice, concentration on whatever's happening. But part, part of mindfulness is also recollection. So what you do, part of mindfulness is just remembering to be mindful. And so the more you do it, the more you remember to be mindful and the more you realize, okay, I can use this experience, apply the four foundations of mindfulness. Let's see what I can see. Let's see what is, what's happening in my body. So, and last question. Samanera. This is for Karuna then. I'm not a Samanera. I am a, a full bhikkhu. I'm just a junior bhikkhu. Uh, since deepening my practice of plus knowledge of the path, I have found I am judgmental of other belief systems. Ah, how may I remain humble and non-judgmental <clears throat> when I feel these judgments arising? Well, I spoke a lot. I spoke in depth about that and we're over time so I'm not going to go too much into detail about that but this is this is when we st when we start to see something that we like and something that's beneficial or we start to get this feeling it becomes part of us it becomes part of me you build it into that framework of self and so that then that builds it into the whole I'm right they're wrong how can they not? That's so silly. How can they believe in that? That's like the flying spaghetti monster. They're retarded. All these kind of things, you know. And, and so, you know, um, th that's that's that is what the Buddha would call conceit, and not conceit how we kind of understand conceit. But the Buddha, the, the Buddha talked about three conceits: I am better than, I am worse than. And the one that really messed me up the first time I heard it was, I am equal to, right? All of these, what is this doing? This is judging. This is comparing. This is being involved in a self. <clears throat> and so, especially in the beginning, like when we get into Buddhism, it's like, oh, man, I can't believe it. I had to wait 20 some odd years to, to find this and to really, you know, oh, this is great. And then, you know, we want to just, tell the world we want to go out and we want to you know tell the good news to everybody and all these kind of things and so that's part of this like messianic beginning of of the of a practice and what you have to uh, to realize is that you know people different people have different pet like when i first came into buddhism <clears throat> i knew buddhism is what i wanted i had studied religions from the time I was young, I, you know, I mean, I, I knew this is what I wanted. And so I started learning. And the first Buddhism near me was the uh, um, Mahayana uh, Mongolian. I went and I'm like, nah, this isn't kind of not for me. The first Buddhism I knew was Tibetan because of the Dalai Lama. I looked at Tibetan, no, this is not for me. There's too much of this, this and that and all this kind of stuff. Uh, no. And then Mahayana, no, this is not for me. I'm Theravada. Oh, this is for me. Theravada is the best. All these other ones, all the texts are later and they're worshiping all these silly deities and what the heck is all this going on? Right? And so this built in me this like, you know, Theravada is the best and all this stuff and you know, all this other stuff is silly. I, I try, I escape Catholicism, you know, not to deal with all this stuff. 
And then, and then what, what, what was funny was, when it's, once I got into Theravada, I saw everything that I thought I was escaping from the other traditions is in Theravada too. Maybe not to the same extent. And that was a real humbling thing for me. It was like, wow, I was really arrogant about that, wasn't I? You know, and, and, and now to, to, to this today, I think, well, Theravada is the best for me. I, I couldn't practice any other way of Buddhism. As a matter of fact, even in, even in Theravada, like we were talking about the Abhidhamma and all these kind of things, there's a lot of Theravada that I don't really care for because it is... It goes against what I find reading in these Nikayas. And so even for me, I have trouble even thinking of myself as a Theravadan monastic. Although conventionally, if I start talking to people, it's like, well, I, I'm, I think more like I'm a Suttavadan. And they're like, what the hell is that? And like all these kind of things. Like, so it's just easier for me to say, yeah, I'm Theravadan. But, you know, so you can, it's really about <clears throat> living and let living. You know, do your practice. Worry about what you're doing, what other people are doing. You can't change the world. You can't change other people. You're not going to convert everybody to Buddhism and everybody's going to become an arahant and then the, you know, the human race is going to end. That's always a funny question people ask. Well, if everybody becomes enlightened, what happens to the human race? Everybody becomes enlightened. That's a win. But, um, but yeah, so it, it's about, I would examine that judgment and, uh, you know, just focus on your own practice. Let people do what they do. You know, it's like, you know, I was a Catholic and I was raised Catholic. And, and you know, I never, I didn't become, you know, a lot of people who leave the Catholic Church, they go into this like really militant atheist phase. Like they hate, the, these people are so stupid and ignorant. I was never like that. I was always um, agnostic. I still am to this day in many regards. Um, and so, you know, I just, I, I just realized, especially now today, it's like, you know, what people are doing their own practice, that's cool. Like, you know, I have a lot of, res I have more respect for, act for people who actually have real faith and, real pra and practice Catholicism now than I ever did because I kind of understand that now in, because of what has happened in my own practice. Um, and there's hypocrisy in every religion. If, if you think that Buddhism, if you think that there's no war, there's no genocide, there's no hatred in Buddhism, start looking at what's going on in some of the other countries, right? You can see there's, just because you're a Buddhist doesn't mean that everything is peaceful and you, you're, it's an ideal. Just like any other religion, it's an ideal. And there's great founders who are great men who've understood great things. They start this thing and they try to teach the people and then after they're gone, the people screw it up. That's just how it happens. So, you know, don't worry about what other people are doing. Have you know, it's good to have, uh, one of the things I love to do is interfaith dialogue. I've been to a Catholic, uh, Catholic college. I meditate, I taught people meditation with a nun. It's fun. It's awesome to kind of have that dialogue with people. Um, and, you know, so don't think about it as, as the other. Think about it as people are on their, pra their practice, they're doing their own thing. And there's a lot of ways that we can see our similarities and then we can also respect our differences and live and let live. So if you can do that, then you, know, you can be around anybody, whatever they believe. <clears throat> okay, so that's it. I've gone over time. And uh, thank you very much for the questions. We'll take a break and you can come back to finish meditation.
needs to go to the bathroom or anything, you can leave. It's okay. You're, you're not going to insult me if you leave them at home. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Forgiveness. It's about understanding. You know, you can forgive. Like, I mean, I my my previous job was <coughs> child protective services. I had to work with. I sat across people who, you know, grandfathers who raped their five-year-old daughter, you know, granddaughters and gangbangers and all these kind of people. Like, you know, who, people who did the the worst things you can imagine. But you know, I, what they a, a person's one thing that what they do is not, you, you, <clears throat> you want to see the, the, the human, you want to see the being behind the action, right? You don't have to, you don't forgive, you don't, you know, if somebody kills somebody, you say, well, I understand they're in samsara, we're not going to put you in jail or do anything like that. You have to do that kind of stuff. You know, if somebody does something really bad, well, they, maybe they have to be in jail. But you don't have to dehumanize them. You don't have to, you can still have compassion for them and understanding for them. You don't even, you don't even have to validate their action. You can say, well, you know, the, the Buddha, you know, was never like, oh, it's okay, you did a bad thing, you know, don't worry about it. The Buddha was very clear. You don't want to, you want to avoid unwholesome actions and you can see the danger that these unwholesome actions do. But you can think, look at Angulimala, right, the, the Buddhist serial killer. You can see, you know, he's, uh, you know, kills 999 people and then, you know, the, he meets the Buddha and then he becomes, you know, an awakened being and, then, and a, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's, when, when we look at, when we look at somebody, in a way, when we look at somebody just based on certain actions, we're not, we're dehumanizing them. We're not seeing the human anymore. And that makes it very easy to to make them the other. And when somebody's the other, that's when we can have anger, hatred towards them. And then that's when we, we they're other, they're not human, we can do whatever, it, we can do exactly what Hitler did to the people that he killed. Dehumanize them. They're just vermin. They're a disease. They're a virus. So let's kill them. Right? Because they're not humans anymore. So it, the reason why I was Bringing that up was to, to was because it's important not to go over that tipping point. To, to keep in mind that that Hitler was a human being. He, you know, he, in other traditions, in other religions, you could say, well, you know, he was Satan, and he's, you know, there's eternal evil. 
like, you know, I don't believe that somebody is either eternally good or eternally evil. I think we have our, we can have choices. And I feel like that's what the Buddha, you know, teaches us as well. Like, the, like I said, the Buddha teaches that we've done all kinds of horrible stuff in the past, and we've done all kinds of good stuff in the past. So if we keep that, if we keep a wider focus, we don't get wrapped up in the us versus them and get involved in the anger and all these kind of things. As opposed to if we're just dehumanizing somebody right down to one thing. You know, Hitler, Hitler was a painter. He was a vegetarian. He loved dogs. He did all these kind of things. <laughs> Stuff that people would be like, oh, he's such a nice person. He killed 10 million people. Oh, okay, well. So... That one person is, is, every person is very multidimensional, you know. So that, that's really where I was trying to go with what I, when I said that. Because when you do, the, the, the hatred and, and the, the dehumanizing is, is really the total opposite of having metta for somebody. Depends on the government. Depends on what the people want. I mean, obviously, in, in Buddhism, 